We are continuing in our study in the book of Mark, and it's kind of an interesting study today. I continue to be amazed at my advanced age that you can open the Bible and still find new exciting things and some insights that I hadn't even seen before. And you'd think, you know, when you get to be as old as Moses, you should know a thing or two. But we keep finding that every time we open the Word, just like the Word says about itself, light emanates from the Word, and it continues to shine on places in our lives that we need to be shined on. So Mark chapter 8 is where we are. I invite you to turn there. Here's a correlation I'd like you to consider. Some of you, if you took logic class or if you had to take some of those uh, little tests for college, you might know about direct proportionality. And here's an example, like the level of your distaste for liver and onions is directly proportional to the level of insistence from your mother that you eat it. That's a direct proportionality. You got that? So that's kind of where we're headed with that. But what brings us into this is the level of your receptivity to a warning is in direct proportion to the level of your respect for the one who gives it to you. In other words, if you receive a warning from somebody that you don't really respect, eh, no big deal. But if you react to that warning because you really respect the person who gave it to you, it's a little bit different. You're going to respond differently. For example, your nine-year-old gets to the point where they start to know what the speedometer does, and they're in the back seat, and they look over your shoulder, and they go, <laughs> you're speeding, you better slow down. That's one warning. But then five minutes later, let's say that a policeman goes, and pulls you over, and he says, okay, I'm going to give you a warning this time, but if I pull you over in this stretch again, it's going to be costly for you. So can you see that one you might have taken a little bit more seriously than another? Depends on which one you respect the most. Now, if you're a parent, I must say, you're going to want to lead by example. So if your nine-year-old tells you that you're going too fast, you probably should back it away. Um, we have arrived at a passage in Mark's gospel where Jesus gives us a warning. And some people might think, eh, no big deal. It's not that big a deal. I'm not going to take it very seriously. And yet, I think that as we start to unpack it, this is one that because we respect him so much, we really ought to take very seriously. The warning comes in a manner that's similar to some other teaching methods of Jesus. He likes to teach in parables and riddles. And so this is kind of a riddle. It's a little bit like a fortune cookie in that you have to crack it open to really get into the message. And then there's a second part that's like a fortune cookie. He wants you to chew on it a long time after you've gotten the message open. So you get to do that with these riddles of his. He teaches that way because he knows it's not just a one and done, but it's a story that you're going to have to ponder and talk about and think about, and you're going to be ruminating on it for some time even after he gives it to you. So that's where we're going today. And the setting for this particular riddle is they've just finished the feeding of the 4,000. Which is so funny because when you look at Mark and how he juxtaposes what just happened with what happens, it makes you kind of look at those disciples and go, <sighs> because we're here at one of those places again, and I put myself in the place of those disciples, and I wonder how many times God has looked at this old boy and gone, 
Because there's just been this great teachable moment and God has poured his manifest power out just as he did with the 5,000, but this time it's in Gentile territory and the disciples continue to learn that God's power is among them and it's in the form of God's son, Jesus Christ. And you'd think the next thing they do should reflect that they really trust in his power. Maybe not so much. So they get in the boat, and then they start arguing with each other because somebody says, hey, you were supposed to get the bread. You know, no, that was your job, Peter. Uh-uh, John, John said it first, and they started arguing with each other about who's in charge, and because they only found that when they got in the boat to go to the other side of the lake, that they only had one loaf left. You had one job. <laughs> Isn't it funny? All these baskets of food left over, and they get one loaf in the boat. I just, I find that kind of humorous, actually. Fortunately, I wasn't there. If I had been there, I'd been really tempted to write some of my poetry because I would have said, water, water everywhere and not a drop to drink. Bread, bread everywhere, but only one loaf, you oaf. <laughs> Gratefully, I wasn't there. Nobody recorded it. It's not in scriptures. It's, just, it's good. But Jesus uses this teachable moment to talk about being cautious or wary of a yeast. Eleven of the Pharisees and of Herod. And true to form, <laughs> the disciples think he's talking about actual bread because they've just been arguing about physical, actual bread, food. So they don't quite get it yet. And basically, Jesus asks them, don't you get it yet? I feel so connected with these disciples. <laughs> so let's read the passage, and then we'll crack open this riddle and look at which kind of yeast we're supposed to be wary of. All right. Mark 8, 13 through 21. So, he got back into the boat and left them, and he crossed to the other side of the lake. This is from the Gentile area back toward the Jewish area again. But the disciples had forgotten to bring any food. They only had one loaf of bread with them in the boat. As they were crossing the lake, Jesus warned them, Watch out. Beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and of Herod. And as they began to argue with each other because they hadn't brought any bread, Jesus knew what they were saying. So he said, why are you arguing about having no bread? Don't you know or understand even yet? Are your hearts too hard to take it in? You have eyes, can't you see? You have ears, can't you hear? Don't you remember anything at all? Can't you sense the frustration? It sounds like a parent, doesn't it? <laughs> Don't you remember anything at all? When I fed the 5,000 with five loaves of bread, how many baskets of leftovers did you pick up afterwards? Twelve, they said. And when I fed the 4,000 with seven loaves, how many large baskets of leftovers did you pick up? Seven, they said. Don't you understand yet, he asked them. Now, let's look at this riddle wrapped inside something that we'll be able to chew on. Physical purpose of yeast. What is that? What is it that would cause Jesus to want to use this as a parable, as an analogy? Well, it causes a, a type of decay that causes gas to be released inside dough. So, as it rises, there's more air in it, makes it so fluffy. And because it does something with gastronomy so that there's more air in there, it somehow enhances the flavor. 
Because a fluffy bread has more surface area on your tongue and your palate, apparently. I don't know any of that stuff, but I just am going with it on the fly. And so I think it's supposed to be really good in that sense. And not every time it shows up, leaven, in Scripture is a bad thing. Sometimes there's a good kind of leaven. There's a leaven of the kingdom of God that can work its way slowly in until it grows and grows and grows. So that's a good leaven. But the scriptural purpose, as we look, especially in the Old Testament, almost every time you see the word leaven or yeast, it's not really positive. It's a type of decay, but it's not physical. And in this case, it's usually a negative quality because it represents sin or moral decay, spiritual decay. And it's associated sometimes with sacrifices that are brought before the Lord. Most of the time, a vast majority of the time, they want unleavened sacrifices because they're representing the fact that they want it without impurity, without sin. And there's an even deeper meaning, and this is something that because of many of these disciples had this background, it goes all the way back to the Passover. And in the New Testament, Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 5, 1 through 8, about that Old Testament passage in which they were supposed to pack everything quickly because they had to leave Egypt, and they didn't have any time to let the bread rise. And so they said, so even eat unleavened bread for the journey because you don't want to take any time to do it. Let's go now. And there are a couple of really good applications for us that when God tells us to leave something behind, we're supposed to leave it. We're not supposed to dilly-dally or dawdle or look back. I remember one song from Keith Green back in the 80s and 90s that was called, So You Want to Go Back to Egypt? And you're looking back at all the stuff that they were starting to long for. And you think, why would you long for bondage? And so that's a good application for us. God says, no, no, leave that stuff behind. Don't even dilly-dally. Just get away from it. And leave the impurity behind of that thing that was bogging you down and causing you to be in bondage. Well, the people in Israel would have known about that. And so every time they celebrated Passover, even though it had been a really difficult journey, they had something to celebrate because they were freed from bondage. So it reminded them. And food does that. Common food symbolizes things like that. That's why it's so important for us when we have communion. It reminds us of stuff. Our family has a kind of a running family joke, even though there was seriousness behind it. I can't look at a plate that has baked beans and potato salad on it without remembering a trip that we made, my dad and my cousins and my sister and I, down to the bottom of the Grand Canyon and back out the next day. And we survived on baked beans and potato salad. It was our manna from heaven. And although we got a little tired of it, just like the children of Israel, oh, we have to have manna again, they were reminded that God was providing for their sustenance. And sometimes things get tough, but he still provides for us. And I can't See that food without being reminded of that. And he really did protect us because my dad had gotten overcome with heat exhaustion on the way out, had to stop about two miles from the top of the rim, and my aunt and my mom had to walk down and they have to help him back up a little bit at a time and he'd stop and rest. And we were really concerned about him. So God provided, dad made it out. We finally got an apple and some bread and peanut butter at the top of the rim, so we feasted after that. But there are two types of leaven. I think this is something that I hadn't really observed until I was diving into this fortune cookie to look for the real message here. It's easy for us to think that he's saying the leaven of Pharisees and Herod. And we think, okay, the Pharisees and Herod. So it's just one leaven, right? I don't think so. For one thing, the syntax shows that and the leaven of Herod is the way it would be coming across. But we'll see why they're different as well. There are two types of leaven here. One type for the Pharisees, another for Herod. And I'll just give it to you straight and then we'll tell you why. The Pharisees was the leaven of hypocrisy. 
But with Herod, it was the leaven of worldliness. Both create a type of decay as they become attitudes in us so that they begin to work in us in certain negative ways to pull us away from God's heart. So let's look at a couple of gospel parallels because this is one of those situations where we start to unpack the fortune cookie and then we recognize, ooh, there's a parallel passage and he gives a little more insight. And so we're going to look at Matthew chapter 16. Matthew shows how the disciples were arguing with one another about the bread. You had one job. And Jesus makes it really clear in Matthew's version of this incident that he wasn't speaking to them about physical bread. In fact, he says so very blatantly, why can't you understand that I'm not talking about bread? I suspect that if he'd had a pulpit, he would have been pounding it just then. And then we get the light bulb moment for the disciples. And then Matthew 16, 12, then at last they understood that he was not speaking about the yeast in the bread, but about the deceptive teaching of the Pharisees. And this time he lumps them in together with the Sadducees religious leaders, deceptive teaching. So, oh, okay. So now they're starting to understand he's saying that this leaven in the Pharisees and these religious leaders doesn't have to do with physical loaves of bread, but it's something to do with their teaching. So what was so deceptive about their teaching? Well, for one thing, they were teaching the traditions of men were actually the commands of God. They kept heaping more and more traditions on top of other traditions and saying they were co-equal to the commands of God. And Jesus took them to task for that. And yet what they were really doing was finding all these traditions of men so that they could use them as legal loopholes, so they could focus on the minutiae and look like outwardly that they were very religious while ignoring some of the commands of God, as we saw a couple of weeks ago. So here's another parallel passage that shows us more about what kind of leaven Jesus is talking about. And this is going to become very personal for us, so hang in there with me. Look to me with my eyeballs. Do you, are, you, are you with me on this one? Good. I, yeah, all right. I know, it's, it's easy. I, I'm up here, so I have to talk, and so I can't get still. But when I get still, let me tell you. All right, this shows up in Luke's gospel, this other parallel, right after the crowd had gathered, and there were so many that they were literally stepping on each other, it said. You can just imagine these clamoring people. If you see... Uh, documentaries like the one about the miracle on the Hudson and all these people are trying to get out of the plane onto the wings and they're just there's no organization they didn't say single file let's go out the exits like they tell you in all the pre-flight warm-up stuff we have the exits that are right over here and they're all going and that's kind of what these people were like as they were trying to get some more free food and they're gathering stepping on each other and I lost my place because I got gesticulation syndrome sorry about that uh, Luke's Gospel. Man, I just really skipped a lot of stuff. <laughs> oh, okay, there's so many, they're stepping on each other. Luke 12, 1. Jesus turns to the disciples and he says, Beware of the yeast of the Pharisees, their hypocrisy. He just comes right out and says it, their hypocrisy. So we can see by piecing together these different gospel accounts that there are two things about the kind of leaven that Jesus says that the disciples should watch out for in this kind of leaven for the Pharisees and these religious leaders, including the Sadducees. The teaching and their hypocrisy. And the teaching folded into their hypocrisy because it was basically saying, do as I say, but not as I do. 
they weren't practicing what they were preaching. Now, there's no mention of the leaven of Herod in these other two Gospels. Only Mark mentions that. So we'll take that one and put it to the side and have that one for dessert. But right now, we're still chewing on the one about the Pharisees. We know that Jesus takes the Pharisees and the Sadducees to task for their hypocrisy and their hypocritical teaching. Matthew 23, this huge long line, I'm not going to go through the whole passage, but it's these woes, which means how terrible for you, how terrible it's going to be for you because, and he starts just lambasting these religious leaders for things like that. He says, you say, but you don't do. That's one of the things that he takes them to task for. Now, the disciples, having just witnessed something wonderful, get in the boat, and suddenly they start arguing about who's better, who forgot stuff, and they're just clamoring for who's going to be the leader here, and it was my job, or your job, not my job. And Jesus, I think, is already seeing that there's this leaven that's creeping in, even to the disciples. There are attitudes among them that could very easily start taking a left turn. And so he starts saying, okay, I'm going to just use this as another teachable moment. Here we go. They tried to look good on the outside, but on the inside they were full of rot, dead men's bones, decay, which is that connotation of leaven. And he saw that that was easily going to be the case with the disciples if he didn't get a handle on it. And there are a lot of disciples that follow Christ, and we still have that ability to have the leaven start to impact us. So here's an application. It's easy for any kind of little bit of decay to start working its way into us so that we might want to appear religious outwardly on the outside, but we're not practicing what our appearance indicates. It's like putting on the mask, doom, doom, putting on the mask of hypocrisy. The mask, hypocrites, came from that Greek drama, and they would put on masks, and so behind the mask, they were something very different than the character they were portraying, and it's easy for us to portray a character. And I know some of us, I've heard of a few people this week that said, man, this was a rough week. We've got this whole election cycle coming up and all the stuff that's going around and there's a lot of negativity in the world and it's just a rough week. That's being honest. That's authentic to be able to admit, yes, I've had a tough time this week. Instead of just showing up and putting on the mask and trying to appear that all is right with the world in my life when it's really not. So, Anyway, Jesus starts taking these uh, disciples into a big lesson time. Sometimes, one of the things that I've seen in my life, can happen in others, we evaluate whether we're going to do something whether, on whether or not it's going to make me look good to other people. That it would make me look righteous or humble. It's like, man, if I accept this position and if I start serving in this way, they'll look at me and realize just how humble I really am. And I heard somebody describe humility as being kind of like smoke. The, the instant you, become rec- you start to recognize it in your, in your own life, it just disappears. <laughs> oh, man, I, I think I was humble just then. Nope, lost it. And Jesus also takes them to task for wanting to be served because they were arguing about wanting to be served rather than serving other people. And he does that a lot in the seven woes. He said, the greatest among you is going to be the servant. You've gotten it backwards. The pyramid, you're thinking that it's on top and all these people are there to serve your needs. The greatest uh, leader is the person who's way down at the bottom helping a lot of other people get their jobs done and become successful without taking credit for it. We don't care who gets the credit. We're just grateful that those other people are getting it done. So that woe section is really a biggie for Jesus and he's kind of referring back to that in some of the thought process here. 
He even says, the greatest among you will be a servant. And I imagine he's probably looking right in the eyes of some of these disciples in the boat as he's speaking some of these words. So then Jesus really means that. The world is full of people who glorify themselves. Don't we see that? Man, athletics, uh, fashion, entertainment. There are certain places where we just see self-glorification all the time. I like a good football game, and I'm really grateful that our Wolverines are undefeated so far. Yay! But there's something really strange about watching all these athletes get out there, and all they do is just one good play, and they're beating on their chest, and oh, one play. It was just one play. Now, I probably would do that too if I ever knocked somebody down that was a monster like that, but you get my point. There's a lot of self-glorification going on in our world today instead of glorifying God, and Jesus recognizes that that's a real temptation. That's a leaven that can creep into all of us. Here's another one from that uh, passage of the woes. What sorrow awaits you? I mean, woe to you, Pharisees, for you're careful to tithe even the tiniest little income from your herb gardens, picking apart the seeds and tithing them probably into the temple because they would give food for the priests. So that was part of how they took care of people. So they would literally tithe some of these things. And And you're worried about that, but you ignore justice and the love of God. Yes, you should tithe, but do not neglect the more important things. So putting God first in our life, that's a good thing. We should do that. Putting him first even in our finances, giving him our time and our talent and our treasure. All that is a good thing. And these guys were doing that. So he didn't say stop doing that. He said, but as you do that, don't neglect the weightier matters. There are things that are even more important than looking at the minutia, especially because it was the minutia that made them look good in the eyes of other people. So that's what they focused on. Here's another practical application that I thought of because I I noticed that there's a tendency when things start to feel a little bit chaotic that it's easy to focus on something that I can control even if it's minor and I can work really diligently on small tasks so that I can check it off my to-do list and feel like I've accomplished something when other bigger tasks are going undone. It's a challenge. It's a challenge in leadership. Leaders can get into that paralysis, and so they're micromanaging either other people by thinking that they're becoming a better leader by that, rather than taking the time it takes to train and build somebody up and help them become successful in doing what they are starting to kind of take over to do because they're afraid it's not going to get done right. And that's a fear that comes into play about, oh, that might make me look bad if it just doesn't come out just right. So there's a form of this kind of decay, this leaven, that can creep into a lot of what we do even in our everyday lives and not just with our spiritual lives. It happens. So here's the big question, I think, that grows out of Jesus' look at this kind of leaven. Am I obeying God from the heart, seeking to obey Him in all areas of my life, or am I selectively obedient? Am I picking and choosing those things that make me look good to others But seriously, there's some bad things going on in my heart, and I feel like I'm sort of drifting away from God's heart. Am I keeping up the appearances by focusing on little tiny minutia, details, obvious outward expressions of faith, so that people can see me doing that and go, oh yeah, they've got it together, they're they're good. While inwardly things are really kind of falling apart, Are there things in my life that I kind of recognize it's pulling me apart because I think they're dishonoring to God or to other believers? 
that's a form of decay that can happen as well. And so then it just makes us want to focus even more on doing the outward things that make us look good to others, even though we recognize, man, I'm feeling this tug of war. I think the Spirit's really pulling at me because I sense that I'm not doing some of the things that I know God wants me to do or saying the things that He would want me to say in this situation. I'm not taking some of these things as seriously as I know from His Word that He would like me to take. Is God's law written on our hearts? Jeremiah 31, 33, as God says through the prophet Jeremiah, I will put my instructions deep within them and will write them on their hearts. Is he writing his word on our hearts? And then there's the leaven of Herod. Let's use that for a little dessert here because it's easy to pick on these secular guys. And we're going to do that with Herod for just a moment. Now let's contrast it. You could clearly see, I think, by looking at the scribes and what they're focusing on and Herod, who's this very immoral person. I mean, this is the Herod who had his stepdaughter dance seductively for a bunch of his party guests uh, at uh, whatever the occasion might have been. And then he gives us this sort of uh, inebriated promise that was just extreme. He says, I'll give you anything you ask me for up to half my kingdom. And that was the opportunity for Herodias, his wife, to suggest to her daughter, oh, okay, go back and ask him for the head of John the Baptist. It didn't end well. It was a terrible promise. It was terrible leadership, and it was a terrible kind of a guy. That's Herod. He was all about self-glorification. His power and his prestige was there just to puff himself up. He was always inviting people to look at all of his wealth and opulence and building great buildings and things to say, yeah, I did that, I did that. You, no, you didn't. You hired a bunch of people to do that, and you had slaves working for you. But that's the self-glorification in a secular way that had nothing to do with obeying God. In fact, God really doesn't factor into that. So that's a different kind of leaven. And I think there's a, an application for us in that we really still have kind of a, a glorification of people who are important. And we see that in TV all the time. There's this sort of hypocrisy where somebody will be dissing some famous person behind their back, and then they show up in person. It's like, man, you are so great. You know, can I get a selfie? You're, wow. And we have this glorification of people and celebrity status and all that kind of stuff. And I think sometimes we miss the mark by saying, is that creeping into our life as well? Because it's a secularization that's creeping into Christians' lives too. Do we respect fame? Or do we respect character? Do we have people that would say, yeah, that person's pretty famous, but boy, God, they've got some work to do in the character area. Now, can I be honest in saying that I've just been wrecked in my prayer life because of politicians who've got all kinds of character issues there? Now, I know that nobody's going to be perfect, but man, I'm just really prayerful about that because I'm thinking it does matter. The Scripture shows us all through the Old and New Testaments, it really matters. I, uh, I won't tell you who I voted for. That's between me and the Lord. But man, I had a weird time trying to figure that stuff out this time. And it's awful. It's, it's awful in our country more than I've seen it ever in my lifetime. And I sound like my father. <laughs> because I used to think, oh, he's getting to be this doomsday old age guy. Well, here I am. And yet I think that we're missing out on a lot of the character. And there's some of this secularization that's really infiltrating and pouring itself into the lives and the hearts of even well-meaning believers. And we're buying some of that stuff. I remember watching, this was a, a, a watershed moment for me. It was kind of a defining moment. 
about not having to go along with the crowd as they were enamored by somebody who had power and fame. In seminary, there was a pastor, a visiting pastor. He was really well-known. He had a big preaching platform. He was on the radio. Uh, and he preached. And he's a good stimwinder pastor. You know, he was that guy that could froth you up and get the crowd on your side. And I looked at my friend, Mark Wingfield, whom I worked with in the communications office at school. And he was a news writer. And he knew a lot of things about this guy. He'd been following some of the politics in the de denomination that were going on at the time. And when everybody stood up at this one moment that was probably when he says it as notes, they'll stand up right now. If you pound the pulpit a little harder. And they all did that. They, they gave him a standing ovation because like, yes, we're with you. And Mark, I looked over at Mark, and he was just sitting there. He wasn't buying it. And I got to learn later why. And I think Mark recognized that there was character at work here. And even though he was famous and people were siding with him, he had been a part of such great division among several of the key leaders in our denomination. And he was pretty hateful in the way he did it. His methodology had not been good at building bridges so that we could make change together. And Mark saw that. And I thought, man, God, I sure hope that I can be mature enough in my faith. That if I see somebody, I can say, I respect the office. I don't tear somebody down if they're in the office. I'm going to have to. God tells us we're supposed to. But would I respect the office while being able to still speak the truth and say, yeah, I appreciate the fact that you're in this office, but oh my goodness, what an awful example you are to the people around you because of your character. I would hope that God would give me enough courage to stand for truth when it comes to that sort of thing. I'll slip this one in here. Uh, I like to give good illustrations about my children when they're not here to defend themselves, as well as the other kind. But I got to go to Chicago a little over a month ago and uh, was able to do a workshop for some folks that my son gets to work with, and they hosted a conference. It was really neat. I got to see where he worked and what he's doing with the Salvation Army at that Midwest Territory um, in their headquarters, and it's, it's really a good work. But what really blessed my heart more than anything was when people would see me and they saw my name tag, they go, oh, you're Clarky's dad. And I think it was great because some of his coworkers still call him Clarky, so, so it, it stuck. And they would say, oh my goodness, we love having him around there. He is so good. And one guy, he's about my age, he was seriously just effusive with this wonderful praise. And he goes, I got to tell you, and I'm not making this up, he is the nicest human being I have ever met in my life. Doesn't that make you feel great when somebody says something like that? Now, I love my other children equally, <laughs> just in case you might be watching that. And people say good things about the girls, too, when I visit their workplaces. But this was more recent, so that's why I bring it up. But I think the character is what was a big deal to them. It wasn't just competency. Now, he is competent, and they mentioned that. You know, he's become our go-to audio guy because he's really good at mixing and he's really good at what he's doing. I'm thinking, well, that's really good to know. But it was the character that mattered. And Jesus is trying to get through to us. And with me, I'm like those disciples. Man, I need to be speaking. He needs to speak the language of two-by-four. Bang! To get it through my thick skull sometimes. He says it's about the character. And this yeast that he's trying to point out, eats its way into our character until it's pulling us away from the heart of God. The Pharisees, they lorded their power over others. They loved the seats of power. They loved being called by their titles all over the place. 
They loved the best seats at public events like banquets and the theater and stuff. But they missed seeing that their influence was supposed to be able to help point others to truth in a positive way. And they had completely missed that point. With Herod, he lorded his power over other people, but it didn't have anything to do with obedience to God. So it's possible, whether you're secular or spiritual, to abuse power and put other people down because of the leaven that grows into your life. And Jesus is no respecter of persons with that, both secular and spiritual. And both become extreme. And we don't ever want to become extremists to the point that we miss the opportunity to show people what Christ really looks like. And I think that's what Jesus really wanted to get through to these disciples. You're not supposed to do something for power or prestige or to win an election or to overthrow the Roman government like some of the folks that would want to do back then. It's about trying to represent Christ so that other people can see him more clearly. So let me personalize this. Uh, I use myself as an example because I recognize that I am susceptible to this too. When I made a decision for a very short time to leave the local church and the local pastorate to take on the role of a leader at a parachurch organization, I didn't know at the time, I had to look back on it in retrospect to see that my motives were pretty mixed in that. I was becoming kind of big-headed. It was sort of heady for me to think of going to the East Coast and New York, just north of the big city. Start spreading the news. Hey. And that I would be a, an executive director because the title sounded, you know, kind of, boy, I might get a nameplate. Ooh. And there were certain things about that job that appealed to me, and I didn't want to admit it at the time that there was some personal ambition. Some of those things that were all a little bit of this leaven that had started to creep into my life. And then we went through one of the most difficult trying ordeals of a year in that location because I had allowed leaven to influence my decision. So grateful when God brought us back into the local church again where I could do what he called me to do in the first place. And then in retrospect, I see, okay, I get it. Which means that I still am susceptible. God could still create, or God could, uh, not God, Satan could still creep in with some of that leaven and start to kind of decay a certain aspect of my life to keep me from being as close to God's heart as he wants me to be. And he really wants his disciples to be leaning into his heart and to know, man, I just know exactly what God would do in this situation, so I don't even have to think about it because I've been prayed up and I'm read up and I know how he would respond. I'm going to do the right thing. That's what he would like for us to do. So that's the riddle. And I think it was prompted by arguing disciples. And God took it from real bread to something that became really important in their lives. And I'm really praying that God will continue to speak to me about the potential of leaven that can become a decay and it can pull me apart from what God wants. And I really desperately don't want that. I want to be able to press into him and to know his heart like crazy. Let's pray. Father, this is, it's like so many of these passages. It's tough to study them and to get ready to share them because uh, you keep speaking to my heart as well. And I, I honestly admit that I am so susceptible to leaven. And I pray that as we continue to try to become the people of God, this family of faith that you would like us to be, that we'll that we'll be struck 
by the Holy Spirit and his conviction in our lives sometimes, and that you'll point out that maybe we're starting to give in to some of that leaven in one way or another. And sometimes it's on the way that we argue about who's supposed to be in charge or arguing about this or that because that tends to reveal what's really in our heart. There's so many ways that we can be affected by that, and I want so badly for all of us to understand how much you love being connected to us in a very personal and powerful way because we're pressing into your heart. And I want us to really press into the heart of God today so that even starting this afternoon and through the rest of this week, we'll be more mindful of how our motives affect how other people see you. And I want them to be able to see you clearly in my life as I demonstrate you through my actions and words. Because I really want people to, to find Christ who is the ultimate source of satisfaction and purpose in life. It's in your name that I pray. Amen.